You're listening to the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the world-leading tech incubator, the DMZ. In this podcast, each episode brings in the movers and shakers of the world to cover leadership mentality, tips for business owners, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's your host, Canada's leading podcaster, CPA and business strategist, Robert Gold, managing partner at Bennett Gold LLP. Once again, from high atop the Movers and Shakers Podcast Center in Toronto, way up on the 33rd floor, live and in the morning, we're way off to the east. I can see Nameless Cove, Newfoundland. I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Bennett Gold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. Today, a classic. I'm so excited. My old friend Guy Kawasaki is back with us. I've talked to Guy a couple of times in the past. This is going to be brand new conversation. Guy is a world-renowned evangelist, an author, Silicon Valley VC, a phenomenal speaker. Guy, welcome to the Movers and Shakers podcast. Jeez, that's quite the intro. <laughs> I know, right? But it's all true. I guess. Well, sounded, <laughs> sounded good. It just sure did. And I don't know what we just did, but my Alexa started talking in the background. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's it's still talking. We'll, we'll we'll ignore Alexa. So a little bit of background on Guy. Guy was one of the first people to join Apple in the 80s. He went on to become their first chief evangelist. Today's the chief evangelist for Canva. And Canva, believe it or not, is a design and publishing tool whose goal is to empower everyone in the world. Canva, C-A-N-V-A dot com. Guy's written multiple best-selling books, many you've heard of. My favorites, The Macintosh Way, and a 2008 book called Reality Check, which we spoke about. Reality Check, I'm going to push it a little bit because the cover says, The Irreverent Guide to Outsmarting, Outmanaging, and Outmarketing Your Competition. Now, granted, it's a number of years old, but it is a classic. Guy, let's start at the beginning. Tell us about your time at Apple and how you ended up being their first chief evangelist. My time at Apple, called The Wonder Years. As in, I wonder when there will ever be software. So I worked for Apple from 83 to 87 as Apple's second software evangelist. My job was to convince third-party developers to create Mac products. I left in 87 after four years to start companies. I returned in 95 as Apple's chief evangelist and Apple fellow, and then I left that in 97. So I worked for Apple twice, two tours of duty, as I like to describe it. Now, Apple had to have shaped your career and given you a great roadmap into technology, but I wonder what it was that initially made you gravitate towards tech. Two things. My roommate at Stanford, a guy named Mike Boych, who also brought me into Apple, he was tooling around with Apple Ones and Twos and all that, and so he introduced me to the Apple II, which I just love. So the Apple II enabled you to do word processing and database and spreadsheet, and you have to put yourself back in this mindset, which may be difficult, but back then, the state of the art for a college student was paying a typist or finding someone with an IBM Selectric typewriter with the white tape that could lift off mistakes. And so you go from electric typewriter to word processing, and that's as if the skies had parted. I just love, love the Apple II and what it could do compared to a typewriter, and that was the beginning. So what would you say was the key thing you remember about working with Steve Jobs? Well, he was very intimidating. All, all the stories you've heard about him being intimidating and, you know, just harsh on people are all true. Uh, that said, I don't know anybody who would trade places or trade that experience away. He was a remarkable person, using the word remarkable very, very tightly. And he truly was remarkable. 
And I would not be where I am were it not for him. Well, you know, you could say that about a lot of people and the way they've used his devices. I mean, it's not his alone, of course, but he became the face of Apple. And the attitude always was, let's just create the tools and let the people do what they can with the tools we create. Is that correct? Well, there was some forethought, a little bit more than that, but I would say that's the reality of what happened. It may not have been the goal <laughs> of that. <laughs> hey, I wonder where that original pirate flag is that flew over that building. Yeah, that would be a good question. I don't know. That would be good to have. Those were the days. Those were. Those right, were the days. Let's talk about evangelism marketing, a fascinating subject. And you're, you, of course, we know as a marketing guru, marketed the Macintosh in 84. You invested in working at Canva. You're a pioneer in this evangelism space. You coined the term, and I see it as an advanced form of... Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. You didn't there coin was it? Jesus before me, okay. Okay, there was Jesus <laughs> before you. And then there's Guy. <laughs> well, well, yeah, okay, that was kind of a 2,000-year gap. <laughs> okay, it took a little while to perfect <laughs> but, it. Listen, I didn't come up with the term. A guy named Mike Murray at Apple came up with the term. I don't want to get more credit than I deserve. Okay, so we'll bring you down a peg or so. But evangelism marketing, as I understand it, is a form of word-of-mouth marketing which companies develop customers who believe so strongly in a product that they go out and market it for you. They just convince other people to use it. Can you explain to us then how powerful evangelism marketing is today and why it works? Very powerful because, well, for one thing, it's more or less free. And what it enables you to do is get people who believe in something as much as you do, and they carry the battle forward for you, not because of money, but because they're looking out for the best interests of their friends and family. So a true evangelist evangelizes you on Macintosh, more modern case, a Canva, not because they're going to make a buck off of it, but because they think it's going to help make you a better communicator by helping make you a better designer or graphic artist. So you have people marching down the street carrying placards effectively saying, use Canva. In a virtual sense. I wouldn't say they're actually carrying placards. I mean, we're not protesting stuff. <laughs> but yeah, they spread the word for you. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think it's much more credible than buying advertising, for example. So what's the first step to turning a customer into an evangelist for my product or service? Well, the first step is to have something great. <laughs> okay, what's Duh. the second step? The second step is uh, being willing to accept help because many companies freak out when people want to help them and they get suspicious. The third step is just getting out of their way <laughs> in most cases. Now, that's a good point because I see a lot of times entrepreneurs are in their own way, but being in the way of people that are, want to tout your product, that's, that's a whole other scenario, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of it is because they just can't wrap their mind around, like, why are these people wanting to help me? It's kind of strange. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Well, let's face it, that, you know, this is a high-quality problem. Not many people or not many companies or products have evangelists because, frankly, they're just not good enough. Or they don't understand it. Or they don't understand it. I mean, we could take a look at every company out there, from Ford and GM to uh, to Shopify to BlackBerry, whom, whomsoever, Tesla, yep. SpaceX. Do they all Tesla, have evangelists? Sure. Tesla, for sure, has evangelists. Well, sure. I mean, you've got uh, Elon as an evangelist for everything he touches. <laughs> and he's going to send a wheel of cheese into space with his starship. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere in the next month. Let's talk about Canva and your evangelism for Canva. Because Canva, as I understand, it's valued about 15 billion U.S. right now. Wild success for the last few years. Is that a fair value, do you think, right now? 
fair value in, in the market? I mean, I, the number that I saw research was fifteen I'm billion. Completely, utterly conflicted, right? What am I going to tell you? Yeah, so don't even answer it. I mean, that's a big number. But what I really care about is what would you say are the similar characteristics between Canva and Apple that all organizations should learn? Well, the major similarity is that the product of both companies made people's lives better. So Macintosh made people's lives better because it enabled them to be more creative and productive and to use computing power. Canva makes people's lives better because it enables them to be better communicators by giving them the power, but also the ease of use of high-end graphic design. Would you say that an entrepreneur who's using evangelism marketing as a tactic can see when things are going wrong? that it's not working out the way they envisioned. It's easy to tell when things are going right. But what about if your evangelism marketing is going wrong? I don't know why a company that has evangelism marketing would necessarily realize things are going wrong earlier or better. I could make the case to the contrary that if you are a company that has evangelists, that you may in fact be at a disadvantage in terms of hearing, quote, the truth, because... You're surrounded by not only your employees who are enthusiastic, but also that first you know, inner circle of customers. So it could be that everybody's telling you you're great and the emperor has no clothes. So wow. I can only build a negative case or a dangerous case that you may be inadvertently only hearing good news. People telling you what they think they want you want to hear. Well, not, and I don't think they're telling you that for that reason. I think that they may just be so much in the reality distortion field that they really do believe what they're saying. Well, the, so I don't think it's, you know, it's not about sucking up. It's more about, yeah, you know, we, we're drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. So maybe evangelism means you don't just give your product or service to the people close to you and your team and family and friends, but you get it out there to people you don't know who can actually tout it objectively. Maybe that's the key to not well, going bad. I think we're overthinking the situation there. I think basically when you're a company, and God, so many companies don't realize this, that fundamentally when you're a startup, you are not buying, you are selling. And, and I'll give you some points. Right? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's a new email client company. There's a new podcasting platform. And I reach out to them and I say, okay, I'm going to try it. And their response is, well, you have to f- fill out this questionnaire you know, we need to determine your needs to see how we can best serve you. And in my case, you know, they wanted an executive to onboard me. And I just said, listen, <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I got lots of other things to do. Just send me the freaking download, all right? And I'll figure it out. I don't need your CEO to onboard me. In fact, I would make the case if your CEO needs to onboard me so I can properly use it and get it, Something is fundamentally wrong with your product because your CEO onboarding me is not scalable. And they kind of disappear. How are they going to reach mainstream when they can't even reach just the inner, inner sanctum of early adopter nutcases like me? makes no sense to me whatsoever. Well, and, and on to that point a little bit. Again, my favorite book that you've done is Reality Check. You make the point there that an evangelist had better be able to demo the product or service. Yes, that's for sure. I think that is one of the most important skills that an evangelist could have. Demoing. Demoing. Yeah. And that's pra- where all the bullshit stops. And practice and practice again. I mean, I, I know how often you 
or Steve, when you did a presentation, how many times the rehearsals went on, how long they went on for, to make a simple presentation look like nothing. It looks so simple because it's rehearsed to death. People would be surprised at how hard Steve Jobs worked. It's not just you know, unnatural. I mean, whether it's Steve Jobs or you know, Tom Brady or Joe Montana or LeBron James, it's not like they just wake up and you know, all of a sudden they're great. They may make it look easy, but they make things look easy because they work so hard, not because it is easy. No, I could not agree more. Let's, let's move on and talk about entrepreneurship and empowerment a little bit. Because I know in past interviews that I've heard, it sounds as if your personal mantra as a leader is to empower people through your writing, speaking, books, etc. What made you decide to help other companies and entrepreneurs? For one thing, there's many answers to that. It's at some level, I get options, so it's, you know, it's financial, right? Yep. But I don't think that's the key. At this point in my life, the key is that I love the product. And get me very right there, I love the product. If I love the product, then I better get along with the CEO. But if I love the product and don't get along with the CEO, I don't care. I just move on anyway. My life is too short at this point to be dealing with assholes. <laughs> Are you not saying you're old, guy? I am saying I'm old. Yeah, well. Time is running out. <laughs> You have a fabulous track record. I'm curious, what was the toughest lesson you had to learn as you were building entities? Probably the toughest lesson is that the best widget doesn't necessarily win. Yeah, I wish that were true, but it's not true. The best widget does not necessarily win. Which widget wins? Well, if you look I mean, at the number of Windows machines versus Macintoshes. <laughs> well, there's that, yeah. You know, like how do you explain that? I don't know. <laughs> hmm, okay, exactly. There's no way to explain that. That's such an incongruity. Tell us about two failures or obstacles that you had to overcome. Well, well that way I just discussed one. It's hard to quote-unquote call Macintosh a failure, but mm -hmm. I really thought it would achieve worldwide domination. So it's not as successful as I thought it would be. So that's one. You know, I'll tell you something bizarre. My Remarkable People podcast, which is something that I look at and I say, this is the best work of my career. My podcast is the best work of my career. But I'm not getting 5 million downloads per episode. And so, you know, is it as good as Joe Rogan or Terry Gross? I th honestly, yeah, I think so. But it's not anywhere close to their volume. So that's, um, you know, life's a bitch. <laughs> do, do you pay attention to the listeners and the downloads and the plays? I'm not obsessive in the sense that I check every time, every day, every everything. But you know, I would love to check once in a while and, oh, my God, now I have a million downloads. <laughs> that would be a high-quality problem. That's a fantasy. That's a, that's a real – not a lot of shows get that no matter who you are. There's yeah, so no, I plotted the curve. You know, we have Joe Rogan at 6 million, and I don't know what Terry Gross gets, 2 million, 3 million, whatever. After that, it probably drops like a rock. Oh, I'm sure. Right. There's so many thousands of podcasts out there. Yeah. It's hard for people to find what they want. There's something like 4 million podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I bet if you took the top 100, the 101st one is probably getting 5,000 downloads mm -hmm. per episode. So we go from 5 million to 5,000 <laughs> after the first 100. I, like, I'm making that up, but I, that would be my guess. You're probably not far off. Is there one piece of advice, one singular piece of advice that you would give to one of our founders? Am I limited to one? No, because my next question is going to be, what's the second piece? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, can I just list them all off? Yeah, just, okay. just go so, for it. Not in any particular order. Mm -hmm. Number one is um, whatever your 
most pessimistic forecasts in terms of when you ship and how much you'll do, add one year to that date and divide by 10 because that's most likely what's going to happen. And you think, no, guy, you're being so pessimistic. I know my software will be on time and beta sites love it. I know we're going to achieve this. Let me tell you something. Check back with me in a year when you still haven't shipped and you're like at 10% of where you thought your installed base would be. So that's number one. If you don't listen to me, you're going to build up an infrastructure and you're going to incur costs and things that you're going to say, oh, God, guy, I pissed away two million bucks because I thought I would be on time and everybody would love it. So that's advice number one. You know, your delusional forecast is a delusional forecast. Number two, you should hire people who are different from you, not the same. So if you're an engineer, don't just hire engineers. And if you're a white male, don't just hire white males because you need diversity to truly be a strong company. And the third one is go review the first two again. <laughs> <laughs> there is no third one. There's only the first two. There's yeah. only the first two. Yeah. Sort of last question. Yeah. What can an entrepreneur do to avoid being distracted? How do they stay focused? There's so many things thrown at tech well, entrepreneurs. Well, a near-death experience is a very focusing event, and I would say that a near-death experience as opposed to a lethal experience is a very good thing. As an entrepreneur, you should be running scared. If you meet entrepreneurs who say they know they'll be successful, it's total bullshit. Okay? I guarantee you, if you ask Elon Musk and he were truthful, He's not sure he'll be successful today. The odds are that you with your patent-pending, curve-jumping, paradigm-shifting, world-class team of overachievers is going to succeed is very low. So get over it. Now, I'm not trying to just piss on your parade. I'm just telling you that's the reality. So deal with that. And remember, you are always selling. You're not buying. You know, those are fabulous tips. I see this all the time. In our CPA practice, we, we mentor a lot of tech entrepreneurs, and yeah. you, you couldn't be more right. Why don't you give us a little 30-second elevator pitchable guy in the Remarkable Podcast and where we can find you and just okay. go on. So because your audience is primarily entrepreneurs, I'll tell you that Remarkable People has remarkable entrepreneurs that I guarantee you you will learn things from, such as Steve Wozniak. Well, duh. Uh, you've learned so much about the true founding of Apple. There are people like the woman who started Poopery, which is a great story. Sounds funny, but it's a great story. How she prevents, let's just say, uh, human smells from invading your household. There's her. There's the person who started Hint, the flavored water. There is some a woman from Australia who started a firm called Business Chicks. And I first recoiled from the name, but she explained why, and she's making it successful. There's also Bob Cialdini, the world's greatest expert in influence and persuasion that entrepreneurs can learn from. David Ocker, who invented, or not invented, but the godfather of branding. Angela Duckworth, MacArthur Award winner about social psychology. Stephen Wolfram, who created the company Mathematica. And oh yeah, by the way, he also is the youngest MacArthur Award winner. I guarantee you that if you want to learn about entrepreneurship, you should listen to these podcasts. Well, I, I agree with you, and I've listened to most of them as they've come along, and they are, they are tremendous. And not that we want to cannibalize our own listenership, but the Remarkable People podcast is really terrific. Guy, there's something I'm going to surprise you with now. We have a little bit at the end called our rapid-fire questions. I'm going to ask you okay. a question, and let's see what comes off the top of your head. The best part about being a serial entrepreneur? best part of being a serial entrepreneur making people's lives better. What was the last book you read? 
So my latest book is Daniel Silva. The protagonist is an Israeli, I think he runs Mossad. Uh, his name is Gabriel Alon. And I love this character, runs the Mossad, and he's like killing all the enemies of Israel and how he does it. But he, his cover is he's an art restorer. You had to be there. Fantastic. All right. Fantastic. It's on my list. Read. On my list. Your favorite city? It's probably Santa Cruz. I mean, I live here. I love Santa Cruz. And I have been all over the world. If you're saying, what's your favorite city that you don't live in currently? Okay. Favorite city Sydney you don't live in? Or, okay, so probably Sydney. Sydney, Australia. If you drain the sink, the water goes the wrong way because it's the other side of the equator. That's a myth. It's true. I was there. I also got, while I was there, I also got a map from the local um, the automotive group, and yeah. the map yeah. had south at the top and north at the bottom. True story. <laughs> As it should be. As it should be, exactly. Favorite meal, guy? Spam musubis. Favorite Apple product? MacBook Air M1. What do you like to do for fun? Surf. Surf? Surf. Are you an avid surfer? I'm an avid surfer. That doesn't mean I'm a good surfer. No, I'm good for you. Surfer. How often are you surfing a week? Every day. Good for you. That's why That's why that tan I saw on the Remarkable People discussion today. <laughs> Name one industry that you think will be gone in five years. One industry that will be gone in five years. Republican Party? <laughs> uh, well, somebody uh, said lawyers and somebody said paper once, so. <laughs> the Republican could be. I mean, it's it's gone now, isn't it? <laughs> That's wishful thinking. Normally, I would say something like movie theaters, but I just interviewed John M. Chu, mm -hmm. the director of Crazy Rich Asians and In the Heights, and he has a pretty convincing argument why theaters are not going to go away. And the gist of his argument is this is the only place where, for two hours, you can free your mind from everything, and it's the only way that a bunch of creative people, i.e. movie makers, can get you for two hours with your total attention. Obviously, you can watch Crazy Persuasions on your phone or on your pad or on your computer, but they don't have you mentally, right? You, it's, it's in one window and you're checking email with the other window and all that. So in a theater, they really got you. And, and you know, there's something to be said for that. There is. And interestingly enough, if you go back over the last hundred years and look historically, whenever there's been an economic depression or recession, not counting now where we have pandemic times, but up until now, in those bad economic times, movie theaters really do well. People want oh, yeah. that distraction. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Tell me, was there one... don't want to get COVID sitting there. <laughs> well, there's that. Tell me something. In your Remarkable People podcast, was there any guests that really blew you away? Everyone blows me away. What are you kidding me? Is there one that stands out? You go, oh, my God, I did not see that coming. Okay, but that's a different question than you know, which is your favorite guest, right? So you, you, we're talking about which one blew me away. Yeah. My favorite guest could be something that did not blow me away because I already knew my favorite guest would be my favorite guest. Okay, so with that caveat, the, with the question very specifically being who was the biggest surprise? Oh, all right, let's go that route. Uh... Probably John M. Chu. Really? Why is that? It just blew me away about the, you know, what it takes to make a movie and, you know, it's his down to earthness, the whole thing, the whole thing. Fair enough. Okay, here, here's the zinger. What's the one question you've never been asked about Steve Jobs? I've been asked every question. I know, I know you have. <laughs> make one up. What was his favorite food? I have no idea. 
<laughs> All right, well, let's leave it at that. What kind of shoes did you wear? New Balance. I don't know. Okay, let's, let's, <laughs> let's leave it at that. Guy, is there, is there anything you'd like to leave us with as far as we have entrepreneurs, managers, tech companies, and others across Canada, which is mainly our audience, although we do well, spill over? Well, you're affiliated with Ryerson, right? Yep, and the DMZ at Ryerson, yep. Okay, so one of my greatest memories in my life involves when I was in Toronto and the people who were my hosts, they knew that I loved to play hockey. This is before I took up surfing. And so they arranged for a pickup game for me at Ryerson in the Ryerson, you know, ice rink. And on my line, do you know this story again? No. Who's on my line? I don't, I don't know this story. Eric Lindros. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Good. Eric, yeah. So Eric Lindros is feeding me passes for one hour, and I still can't score. <laughs> Come on. Come on, because he's a deadly passer. He did not miss your stick. No. 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 Are you playing hockey have, at all? I have it on the ice. <laughs> Are you still playing hockey at all? No. I Now I. it's a different form of hockey. It's like on liquid water. It's called surfing. Mm-hmm. Let me just ask you one more question. And, and, and one of the challenges always for our entrepreneurs is raising funds, whether it's a VC or angel investor yeah. or family or friends. Is there one tip about fundraising that you would leave us with? Do a great demo. Ah, back to that. That's it. That's it. I think a demo is worth 10,000 slides. Let's leave it with that. Guy Kawasaki, world's greatest evangelist. 2,000 years between him and Jesus, and he nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thank you. All right. And until next... All my best to my friends in Canada. I've never met a Canadian I didn't like. No, that, that we're just so damn likable, aren't we? We're just so damn well, likable. Oh, yeah, and you know, you, you really helped the United States back in Iran. I mean, Did you see the play Come From Away? No. You have to go see it. Do you know what it's about? No. All right, well, Google it or YouTube it and look for, look for the storyline and uh, go see it at a theater. At theater. It's actually going to be playing on um, or Disney One. I think it's Apple oh, yeah? is, doing a, is okay. it doing a broadcast. Yeah, Come From Away, it's all about the 9-11 when all the planes had to go to Newfoundland because they, they were all, they couldn't go to the U.S. Oh. Yeah, it's an, I, you know, I went to Newfoundland once, and um, it was the most interesting experience. I was speaking there, mm-hmm. and I had chest pains. So they, you know, they played it very cautious. They thought maybe I had a heart attack. So then I went to the, it's called like the Queen's Hospital or something like that. And anyway, so I get diagnosed, and it was really like pneumonia as opposed to a heart attack. And I get home, and the bill for that was like 600 Canadian, right? Which is roughly 15,000 U.S. dollars less than exactly what it would have been less. in America. Yeah, we've got we've got quite the healthcare plan. Yeah, but wait, there's an even better part of the story. So then, now I'm in you know, Halifax or wherever, or whatever that city is, and I need to get back to San Francisco. So I've missed my flight, right? And so the, the people at this convention, which it was the grocery convention, they like arranged for me to catch a ride with one of the food producer execs on his private plane to Toronto, so I can catch the next plane. You know, the next morning from Toronto to San Francisco, and so I, I flew from private. I flew on a private jet from. Is it Halifax? Do I no, it's probably St. John, Newfoundland. Halifax oh. is in Nova I Scotia. I got this story all wrong, but anyway, so <laughs> you had the I wrong got province. The east coast of Canada to Toronto on a private jet with this billionaire who runs a you know food 
mm-hmm. company. It's Canadian, a story. Canadian hospitality. I also have to correct you on your mispronunciation of, of Toronto. It's, the uh. second T is silent. It's Toronto. What? Yeah, it's Toronto. T, if you pronounce it T-R-O-N-O, Toronto, or T-R-O-N-A, Toronto, you have it right. That's how you talk like a native. Welcome to Toronto. Wow. I learned something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for being a guest. All right. Take care. All right. Before I go, until next time, I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner at Gold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. If you want to see how we make out with innovation, check us out at bennettgold.ca. See you next time in the morning, everyone, and good night. Nameless Cove, Newfoundland. And that's a wrap for this episode of the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at dmz.ryerson.ca for more tips and tools designed to support your business. Until next time.